Welcome to DocuTalks, a podcast about documentaries mostly from Netflix. Chelsea and Michelle may be from two different generations, but they both share a passion for talks of true crime, murder, and documentaries with flair. Join these chatty bitches while they dish the latest hot documentary on DocuTalks. interview that brought down Rachel Dolezal. That's what we're going to be covering in our podcast today. It's called The Rachel Divide and it's on Netflix. Rachel identified as a black female, but she was actually born to white Caucasian parents. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Chelsea. And just a warning, we may be using some adult language. Um, especially Chelsea. I, I tried to keep myself in check. I have to say, there is no swearing in my notes today. Let's see what happens. <laughs> All right. So we usually start with just what we've been listening or watching or reading this week. Um, so I'll start first, Chelsea. I read a book that is somewhat um, related to our topic today. So this one is Inheritance by Danny Shapiro. Basically, it's about the fact that she grew up in a Jewish family, but she didn't look Jewish. She's like a blonde girl. Everybody questioned her her whole life about, are you really Jewish? You don't look Jewish. So in that way, it's kind of similar to Rachel's story. And then she gets a DNA test for gift and finds out that she's not the biological daughter of her father because her mom ended up having in vitro. And what they did back then is they mixed the sperm from the father with sperm from somebody else before putting it in the mom. Are you, have you finished the book? Yep, I finished the book. Okay, but so they didn't even mix the sperm. The doctor just fucking used his, oh, there we go, guys. I already got it in. (laughs) Just used his sperm. And then it turns out he's got heaps of kids everywhere. No, I thought they did mix the sperm. So I researched additionally after I read this. Oh, it okay. out. oh, I loved that book. Honestly, it was such a good one. Yeah, I just found it interesting. This whole connection to biological parents. These people didn't raise you. They weren't there when you were crying at night or you skinned your mm-hmm. knee or you were sick. They had nothing to do with you other than donating an egg and a sperm to create you. So I find it really fascinating, this obsession with biological parents. And also, like, adoptees finding their real parents. It's like, it's not always a road you want to go down. And a lot of times, who you identify as your family doesn't always have to be by blood and things like that. And I think we take that for granted a lot. That doesn't make sense. Like, I don't understand that obsession with biological things. So now I kind of want to change what I was going to talk about, but I'm not going to. I'll stick to the original. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I've been watching the new docuseries on Netflix about Jeffrey Epstein. And so when I find time in between all of my modern family binges, because basically <laughs> modern family is the only thing that's getting me through this post-pandemic world well post for New Zealand not post anywhere else it seems so I'm halfway through the documentary series right now and I love that it focuses on what happened from the victims perspective and like the people involved perspective and it builds the story up from the ground up I listened to the Behind the Bastards podcast episode about the bastards behind Jeffrey Epstein, and I find that it really tied in nicely together because I knew about a lot of the people who supported him and kept him in business and and kind of kept things under the rug, you know, like they gave him in their ends and like even though they knew he was doing all this stuff, but they kept it quiet. So you guys... Oh, it's disgusting. You guys should really check out the docuseries, but also the podcast. Behind the Bastards is amazing. They do such great, such great podcasts that really break down those people that support the bastards and keep these disgusting, evil people in power. It's just like R. Kelly. Well, exactly. It was the same I, thing with his his uh, docuseries. Mm-hmm. All the people around him who knew he had these young girls around and he was abusing them and Nobody said anything. Harvey it's Weinstein. Money. Yeah, it's all money. Does, yeah, it's it is. It really is. And so, um, no, it's just always really interesting to see how people stay get into power and stay in power when they know that they have these disgusting predilections. All right. Well, let's get into the shows. I found this whole story very fascinating. I must say, I remember when it came out in the news. I was shocked that someone who was born white and very white looking was able to even pull off that she was black. I I just found that crazy that people believed her and she was able to get away with this. But it does make me think about race and the meaning of race and culture and identity and how society sees it. And I really just wanted to know more about this woman and her story. So I watched the show. I also read the book. That was interesting just to hear. I'm so proud of you. Yes, just to hear a little more detail. Yeah, because I had to binge read that this week, which I'm not necessarily a fast reader. Like Chelsea reads a book in a day and a half. And I also just want to disclose that I grew up in a small town, pretty well all white people. When I was growing up in school for elementary school, we had a brother and sister that were Chinese. And then when I made it to high school, we had a brother and sister that were originally from Pakistan. And that's pretty well the only visible minority, I would say, in our community. It's really interesting because we grew up in the same place, obviously, but generations (laughs) apart. And now our hometown is so multicultural and there's heaps of visible minorities there, at least when I was growing up. So when I went to school, like completely different experience than you had, but same, same town. I found this documentary to be incredibly fascinating. I always have been curious about Rachel's motives and what her life was like growing up, uh, just to find out what influenced her and the decisions or justifications of her actions. I do remember the story breaking, but I just, I never really looked that deeply into it. As a sociology major in university, I spent a lot of time studying the constructs of race and sexuality. So it kind of gave me a bit of a a background. So at times I found her arguments to be compelling, but also insane. (laughs) 
Yes. Now, I don't know, Chelsea, should I go through my timeline? Listeners, when I saw the notes and I saw (laughs) the timeline. I had to put it in there just for you. I had to say there was an epic eye roll. (laughs) I I love the Chelsea timeline. Well, I'm going to highlight a few things. Definitely. Okay. I think I do think the timeline's important because this one time. But um I find that Rachel really bullshits a lot during her interviews and she kind of makes things up or misappropriately mentions when it happens, like or makes it seem like she was involved. So to be fair, this is one time where we need a timeline. Okay, good. I'm glad you're coming aboard with the timelines. This is part of the reason I did it was because you know, kind of where what she says about things isn't quite 100% true. So, for example, she she always says she was homeschooled, but she actually wasn't homeschooled until high school. Yes. Yeah, that I found that very interesting when I read her book. And then she was 16 when the um, black children were adopted into the family. So in 11 months, her parents adopted three babies that were all born within eight months of each other. That's horrific. Just like taking care of all those babies. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy how, like how quickly that happened. And then she got a scholarship for art Mm -hmm. and attended Belhaven university. And then she actually got married while she was, while she was there just before she finished school. And then she went to Howard university and got a master's in fine arts from Howard University. So she actually doesn't have a master's in African studies or African history. It, it's an art. She's like an art major. And she got divorced in 2004. So, But she had one child with her first husband. And then 2010, she got legal guardianship of her brother, Isaiah, who was 16 at the time. And then 20. 10 was when she started teaching as a lecturer at the university. She was elected to president and AACP. And then in 2015, this is when things all went awry. Uh, when she had that famous interview that basically blew everything out of the water. And she gave birth to her last baby in 2016 and legally named, changed her name then also. So it's a quick preview. Oh my gosh, okay, I'm so glad we did that timeline. Listeners, make note of this. Put it on your calendar, because I may never say it again. But, holy shit, I didn't realize, first of all, she did fine arts and not African study, because that's what she made it sound like. So, I don't know if you remember in the documentary, but at one point she says, I had to choose between being a wife and mother. From the book, it sounded like her husband was very controlling and mm-hmm. wanted her to be that traditional wife. And yeah. so one day he he hit her. So she decided, no, I can't have my son growing up like this. She was trying very hard to make it work because she was still kind of half in her traditional values, half out. And yeah felt that I can't get divorced. I've got to make this marriage work. But as soon as it turned physical, she was like, I can't have my child grow up in this. I'm leaving him. Okay. And see, I always thought it was just like, you know, she was being a mother to the adopted children. And I really thought that she had adopted Isaiah's brother, who was also put up for adoption. Yeah. That's kind of what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
So where to even start with this one? Because honestly, there's a lot of different things and I'm hoping we can kind of contain ourselves because even when we talked about doing this podcast, we started going on and on and we said, okay, now we're going to save it for the podcast. I know. Well, (laughs) let's start with um, how she even identifies as black. Let's try and unpack that ticking time bomb. Yeah, that's the big one. Oh my goodness, it is. So. I found I found this particularly difficult to watch during the documentary. Um, I don't know why. I think because I feel like she's kind of I maybe idealized it, or as an adult we change the way we think we perceived things as children. I don't know. Some people like to write their own childhood, so I kind of maybe felt that that about this. But so as a child. Uh, Rachel said that she drew self-portraits of herself with a brown crayon. She has systemically created an image and a story that goes along with it. Like for me, it just felt very, I bought, like, this is my story. This is my neat little package. These are my childhood stories I tell. Kind of reminded me of Carol Baskin. Not going to (laughs) lie. Got a tie in Tiger King wherever I can. But no, it just really reminded me of that. These are my pre-packaged stories of my life that I share to Mm. prove who I am so for me I was just like I was really thinking like okay so does the fact that she has biracial children give her the right or reasoning to appropriate their race is that what she was thinking like she wanted to match their identities or um well, she did want to give Isaiah in particular, like uh, the black family experience, because she said that's when she really kind of 100 percent decided I'm identifying as a black woman. I'm a mother to two black children. That's when she kind of fully committed to this. But I I remember her saying that he encouraged her or wanted her to not look so white. I think, again, because he was adopted into this white family and there was actually no black culture, identity, Mm -hmm. anything encouraged in that family that he really wanted to probably rebel against that and wanted his family to be identified as a black family so she does talk about it in the book that they sat down and talk about it and so she said well when you go to school we'll identify myself as black because I think in the states somehow you're having to identify your ethnicity and all these forms everywhere yes well what is that Michelle but there is some crazy racial identification issues going on in the states like in the Appalachians there's this like community of white people, their birth certificate is having them down as, as black because, you know, they have like back many, many generations, a black relative or a black family member because they're descendants from uh, a lot of them are descendants from slaves slash like that whole community um, has a background in that has roots in the slave industry. So it's like all these, there's a whole white community that their race, on their identification papers on their birth certificate is black. I watched a little mini documentary on it after watching this documentary, because I was doing a deep dive into racial identity. Well, don't you think, honestly, anybody whose family has been in the States 
for many generations probably has some black in them, considering slave owners had sex with their slaves. Well, exactly. And there's so many descendants and undocumented descendants. And also, I think it's really interesting that we're so quick to jump on the I'm black bandwagon, but no one's identifying as, you know, Native American. You know what? As as I was reading her book, because she actually does have Native American uh, descent, I think it was like a great grandparent or something you know, not that far back. So I'm thinking, boy, why didn't she get on like the indigenous issues? Why was it that she picked the black culture? But I think the adoption of these children was what really... The catalyst. Yeah, I really do think it drew her to that because she was 16, right, when they adopted. And she says she mostly looked after them herself in particular. I mean, considering this mom had like four little kids all within like a year that she definitely needed the help from Rachel. So she was helping to look after these kids. So I can see why she wanted to, you know, help them with their identity and their culture. But at the same time, like, I really feel it was in the documentary, they kind of portrayed it like, like she was growing up as a child, like really young with these black, like with these black adopted babies or like she has this whole story about how when she was young, they went to Africa, but like that never happened. And it's just like, no, they went to Africa after like the family did live in South Africa, but she didn't live there with them. No, she moved out. She was in university then or something like that. I thought that was crazy. Yeah. That was interesting, too, because she made it sound like she was in South Africa and she wasn't. And also, I'm sorry, but lots of lots of Caucasian people adopt multiracial babies and you don't see them adopting their multiracial child's ethnicity. Like I have a friend who was a Korean baby adopted by a white family. No one pretended they were Korean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think Rachel took it real far. Yeah. And it's funny for her childhood, she talks about how she always felt like an outsider and she really goes on in in the book, especially about how Josh was the favorite child right from day one that she was basically, you know, treated like a servant. So that's Mm -hmm. why she identifies with the black experience. She didn't really feel like she ever fit in with her parents yeah and of course all the abuse she she claims too right I just think that's such a racist and racially loaded statement that's just assuming that everyone who is black is treated like a slave and a servant and to me that is very narrow-minded and very racially insensitive like Oh my I know exactly what you're saying. That's a big stretch. It's a big stretch. It was a tough part of the book to read because I was like, really, Rachel? Okay. It's not 1900 anymore, Rachel. Yeah. But, you know, for whatever reason, this, the black culture spoke to her. So when she went to college, she joined the Black Student Association because they did have a policy that you didn't have to be black to be part of it so she joined that association and sounded like she did a lot of good work for them and so that helped again for her to adopt the kind of black culture more 
she was an amazing advocate for black rights. It's amazing when someone can be that great of an advocate, but that doesn't mean you need to adopt their culture. And it's, yeah. it's just very shameful that, you know, we don't take into consideration what she accomplished or the great work that she did try to accomplish. However, in the documentary, when we do hear from pe- other people who are involved, it does really seem like she was using her advocacy as a performance platform as opposed to true advocacy yes but they also did say she did a lot for the community like they certainly do acknowledge how much she did I think this lady's a real right fighter I think this is her passion to fight Mm -hmm. for rights and equality so she could have done it with anything, like we said, with Indigenous yeah. rights. She could have done it with feminism. She could have done it with the LGBTQ community because she does identify as bisexual. So she could have yeah, done it with anything. Fun. But she kind of chose to focus on black rights. So, And mm-hmm. it just was amazing seeing those pictures. She was so white and so blonde. Like, when I saw those pictures of her, I didn't even know that was the same person. I was just so shocked. It is shocking, isn't it? And I think the biggest issue is just like you mentioned a bit, touched on it a bit, that she lies about her background. So she Mm -hmm. does say in her book, it was always hard to explain her background because she would wear her hair like in braids, dress in traditional clothes and stuff. So she would look black and then people would question her and she really didn't want to have to continue to go through this whole story and try to explain things. So it was just easier to say she was black. I just can't stop thinking about a quote I read in an article about black fishing and about how black fishing is just essentially women cosplaying in black culture, white women cosplaying in black culture. And for me, Rachel is cosplaying in black culture 100%. Yeah. Uh, she had very extremist parents and a very extremist childhood. Like you said, they were extreme Mormons. So it's like I can understand like she's got these extremist roots. So for her it's like she's kind of gone from one extreme to the other. And she's really oh. wanting to just totally forget her past, like distance herself yes. as much as possible from that. And which, like, she has completely disassociated. The adoption of the Black children, like you said, is what got her into the Black history. I still can't believe that she didn't do Black studies at university. Because she claimed, like, she became a professor of Africana. How do you become a professor of Africana if you don't even have a degree in it? So, she was not... uh professor in the traditional sense of the word so she was hired every semester for certain courses so she was never a full-time professor she was Mm -hmm. part-time teaching a specific course I read it somewhere online that it wasn't technically a professor necessarily in the documentary, they really make it seem like she like she portrays herself as she was this professor of Africana. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what I was Shook. shocked about, too, was the fact that her her master's wasn't in like African history or something to do with that as opposed to to art. 
but but she does teach a lot of art in the universities too but then she also taught other courses i mean i think she's a real smart woman like i think there's no doubt there she's smart what did you think about her adopting this term transracial and the fact that race is a social construct okay so i spent a lot of time unpacking that after watching the documentary and Mm -hmm. My partner and I actually talked a lot about it. Like, I think we talked for a few hours after that documentary uh, because we were, we kind of were unpacking it. And then it made me think of, you know, transgendered. And his his argument was, well, if you can be transgendered, how can you not be transracial? And in reality, like, at first glance, yes, I could. Like, at first glance, when you hear Rachel say transracial, you're like, Okay, yeah, maybe I could give that some credence, but in reality, that's just some white privilege wrapped up with a pretty bow. Because the guy that um, had her in for a lecture, Ronnie Gladys, he looks back, but he says that he feels white and he doesn't identify with the black identity. So how could he be transracial and identify as a white person? Nobody's going to view him as a white person. He can't get away with that. And that's the whole point. Like, I get the idea of race as a social construct after I spent some time thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Because it's about the meaning we put to that race. What does a black American person mean in general in society? Right. Like what the stereotypes and the interactions we're having that particular race but you can't change the color of somebody's skin. And no. that's how that judgment's going to be made just by the look of somebody. And there are lots of very high yellow black people who have been misidentified as white and they've rolled with it. Yeah. yeah it's not like when I lived in Japan, I could have all of a sudden one day, okay, I'm, I've decided I'm Japanese. Exactly. And it was also the fact that she was light skinned. She had freckles she had pale eyes and that alone within a racial hierarchy allows her so much more power I know what you're saying of course Rachel would argue with you no because she talks about how she's discriminated against as a black woman and pulled over by police and blah diddy blah but Honey, I, you're not even a black woman. <laughs> I just have a real hard time believing that. And I think those those two ladies in the documentary, yes. what is it, Katira and Latoya, are they? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. I loved those ladies. They had such excellent points. And they bring up the fact that whenever somebody would say something about their experience as a black person, Rachel would always have kind of a one-up story. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The overarching questions and defining questions of this documentary was, could she have accomplished all that she had done if she was just honest and authentic about her race instead of lying? Because that was something people kept saying. They're like, we just wish she would admit what she really was. And Rachel wouldn't. I mean, I give her credit Mm -hmm. for putting herself out there for everybody to criticize her. And when I watched the documentary the second time around, softened up a bit on her. I was thinking to myself, well, maybe this is where we'll be in the future. And she's the pioneer for it. And we're the ones that are all screaming against it. But 
20 years from now, it won't be a big deal. I mean, it's just when I was growing up, you know, people didn't accept gay people. Now it's really not a big deal. So is she going to be the one that's spearheading the way here? I, I don't know. I don't Michelle, know. Michelle, I love you. Michelle, <laughs> right now it is 2020. We haven't even completely accepted like race as it is. There isn't even true equality within race, let alone the ability for people to have transracial identifications. Just to give context to this podcast, it is May 31st, 2020, and Minnesota is rioting because of George Floyd. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm just saying, if we are having race riots in 2020, and we haven't even accomplished acceptance and racial equality with Martin Luther King leading the way 60 years ago, how can we think that there will be true racial equality and we're going to allow people to identify as transracial? I know. I like to think that it's not going to be that way in the future, but gosh, we've had so much time to try to evolve in this area and we haven't. So for me, I'm just like, I feel like we've, taken so many steps back now these transracial identifications and are just it's white privilege wrapped up in a new pretty bow it is I mean absolutely is white privilege I I absolutely agree with you because like we said it doesn't work the other way it doesn't so I'm curious what listeners think of this whole idea transracial I don't think it's a very popular opinion but I'd love Mm. to hear what listeners have to say and you know It's interesting, you know, you mentioned the riots that are going on right now. And, you know, they talked about some of the hate crimes that were happening during this documentary, too. And I don't know. I struggled with whether she's telling the truth about this. I don't think think she is. I think this is the problem is, unfortunately, because she's lied about her race, we now question everything she she says. And like we said, she she made it sound like she was homeschooled. Well, she didn't really get homeschooled till she was on high school. She sounded like she lived in South Africa. No, her family was in South Africa, but she wasn't with them. So there's just a lot of things that, you know, you question. So the hate crimes, you know, again, um, Katrina and LaToya talked about how much they had to question everything. Because for one, they never had that much hate mail or that much um, focus on them before Rachel came along. Yes. I I don't know. I really think that it was an inside job. I do. I firmly believe it. And I, and it's not because of the fact that Rachel has been mercurial about her past and hasn't necessarily been truthful, but I think it's just the fact that when they were interviewing other people, yeah, like there wasn't that much hate mail before she came around the way it was sent and the way it was done made it look like it was done from the inside because not a lot of people have access to those things. I think it feeds really well into just her performance art that she was doing. It gives, uh, it gives her a vehicle to put her platform on and to give her fuel for the fire per se. And I think she was trying to 
you know, like how she did that one upping, like she needed stories. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I'm just thinking of um, my book I read, Inheritance, and and Danny Shapiro saying how everybody questioned her. Are you Jewish? You don't look Jewish. Exactly. Like the Jewish Jewish community had no problem questioning her about whether she was Jewish. But the black community, even though they were thinking, hmm, is she really white? They didn't want to say anything. I found that so fascinating with with Danny because you can convert to Judaism. It's a yeah. religion. So anyone could be Jewish if they so choose. Well, not everyone could be black. I know, but it's just interesting how she got questioned so much. Even though Rachel, people were thinking, huh? But I guess they don't want to be insulting and they don't want, they're probably not trying to perpetuate the different shades of black that are out there and making it sound like if you're too light skinned, you're not really part of our community. That really harkens back to like what we were talking about before with the roots in slavery and the fact that, yes, there were so many slave owners that were having children. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. Um, I have to say one thing that really stuck out and like it ties into what we were just talking about, but the fact that so many of these people, their race and their identification is so built off of discrimination. Like you can't be black because you have, like you haven't been discriminated, discriminated against in the way that we've been discriminated against, or you don't have these stories of injustice. And I just felt that so heartbreaking that race and discrimination went so hand in hand for these people. And it almost seemed like their whole identity was built off of it. Yeah, that's true. It was it was sad, actually, that that's just so ingrained in their life experience. Exactly. And just like when... Rachel was talking at that conference and their number one go-to was, well, have you experienced this? Have you experienced that? Do you know what it's like to be a black woman? And like, it was very difficult because it made me really think about, you know, racial construct, racial race as a societal construct and how it's so intertwined with rights and privileges and discrimination and just, a big message I got from that documentary was just discrimination and injustice is, is being a racial minority. Mm-hmm. So we did talk a little bit about her work as an advocate, right? Yeah. In the book, she goes into more detail about that. And she mm-hmm. really did do a lot, honestly. And she did. She, she raised did. the human rights issues in general and for the black community like I said, I think she's a right fighter. So when they showed her in the documentary at the Martin Luther King March, she just looked so happy. Like she just looked like she came alive marching with everybody. And she could have come is, alive as a white woman marching with everybody and, and being yes, an ally. Absolutely she could have. But I'm just saying that's really, I think, where her passion is. And it is kind of sad that she's not able to do that at this point because of this lie, because this really is, I think, what makes her life worthwhile. But at the same time, though, it's like she became an extremist. She could have been an amazing advocate. I can't help question, like if she had picked up a different 
a different issue, like you were saying, a different thing to advocate for. Would she have taken it just as far for that? You know, like, would she have to be an extremist in all cases? It's just sad. It really is sad because we need allies. Yes. And the thing was, when she went to Belhaven University, for her BA, she was accepted into the Black Student Union, and she wasn't identifying exactly. as Black at that time. That was part of her journey to getting there, but she was accepted by the students and seemed to do really well in that club. So you would think that showed her you didn't necessarily have to identify as Black in order to help advocate for civil rights and human rights. Yes. And then when they showed um, the footage from her previous uh, protests and, and the previous work that she had done, there were heaps of white people there working alongside yeah. the advocate. So it's like, and even at the NAACP, there are Caucasian people who work there that are doing this amazing work. Would she have accomplished so much if she was a dark black woman? Did she get so much notice for her advocacy because she was high yellow passing is black it's just such a difficult thing it is it's really hard to unpack actually what do listeners think i know what do listeners think do you guys think we're crazy as two white women discussing this (laughs) i know i know that's why i had to put my disclaimer out there i know i know and i'm like okay guys i'm related to her so obviously i look the same (laughs) yeah exactly it's very difficult, but that's the thing is um, I think society shies away from having these difficult talks because we are so aware and so afraid of being labeled as racist or racially insensitive and things like that. But I think that because we haven't had these kinds of discussions, it's created the racism that we have. It's yeah. created the foundation for this to continue to perpetuate. I felt bad for her sister, Esther. So her sister, Esther, was going to court for the sexual abuse she experienced from her brother, Josh. And Rachel was abused by him, too. But during the court case, this um, lie came out about Rachel. And so they decided to drop the case. So it's really sad. I felt bad for Esther. I felt it was a tragedy, and I just thought Rachel was being so selfish. All anyone wanted was for her just to admit she wasn't really black. That's all they wanted. But yet she could not. And, And I do firmly believe that her parents knew that this was going on, and they knew that this would be the catalyst that would get Josh off. And they took advantage of it because they hired private investigators to get the dirt on her. And then they were like, see, she's crazy. Yeah. Which proves her theory that Josh was the chosen one in the family. It, oh, it was it was horrific. I felt I felt bad for Esther, but I also felt bad for for Rachel because like it just goes to show the in- inequity that was happening in that family. And just and it did back up a lot of what she said. And it was really sad. Like, it's just so hard to ever see families be that divided with children and and to just throw your child to the wolves because you don't want to believe that your other child could be a predator. Exactly. 
no one ever wants to have a child that's a rapist or a murderer or abusing your other children. No one wants that. But for you to pretend that it's not happening and sacrifice your other children for one is the most selfish and disgusting thing you can do as a human being. And I think part of the problem is her parents come off as older religious couple. Midwestern. That just don't understand what happened. Why is Rachel rejected us and what's going on? But, you know, if you read her book, I absolutely do believe, you know, there was abuse and and injustice and even just the way she was raised and how religious they were. Like she had to wear dresses all the time. Like she couldn't go on dates. Like it was a really strict family. It, it really was not a great environment. And I mean, that's part of the reason Isaiah even wanted out of there. And Isaiah had the best quote in this whole documentary when he said, One job as a parent is to give your child a childhood you don't have to recover from. I felt that in every molecule of my body. I felt that. I was like, that is the best quote. Amazing. That is like the best way to say what your job is as a parent. It is. You don't have to be a perfect parent, but it's about trying to do the best you can and not being so strict or beating them with a baboon whip when they misbehave that they're going to be traumatized. Exactly. And just, oh my gosh, it's not that hard to not take it to the extreme. And it's, yeah, so I really do agree with you. Like the parents came off so so like white bread, middle America, the perfect, you know, parents. And Rachel is like fucking out there. She is woo, <laughs> doing crazy stuff. And I get that. Like Rachel's being Rachel. So how could you not think Rachel is mentally ill? These poor parents. The other stuff's probably a bunch of baloney. Look yeah. at me go. I'm I'm doing so good with not swearing. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know. It's it's exactly that. It, it was very easy to understand. But at the same time, we all know people like those parents. Oh, yeah. I felt so bad for Franklin because I think he's really struggling with all this. And he talked about how he has no choice about this and how much it's affecting mm-hmm. his life. It's draining him, he said. And that just broke yes. my heart when he said that. Well, oh. I could imagine. Like, Isaiah had to escape to Spain. Franklin wasn't so lucky. He was only 13. I think the documentary took place over like a year or two. Yeah, I think it was probably about a a year. But it was such a pivotal age for him of development. And uh, you can, I really thought you could see a distinct shift in the children and the support of her throughout the duration of the documentary. Mm. At first, they seemed to be supportive of her and they understood where she was coming from. But in the end, it really... They really felt the need to distance themselves from her. And and it kind of, Rachel put a lot of pressure on those kids. She used them to justify her decisions to portray herself the way she did. And yeah. she almost implies that it was them who wanted it, not her. I don't know if I, I agree with that. I don't think that she portrayed that it was them that forced her into it. I think that was no, just like, a one part of the journey. 
she really makes it seem like I had to be that strong black woman for them because they didn't want me to be a, a, a white woman anymore. You know, they wanted a black family. Like, that's like heterosexual pe- parents don't need to pretend to be homosexual to support their homosexual children, you know? I hate that I keep um, hearkening it back to sexuality, but it's just one of those transmutable things in a way. I think it's an easy comparison, and I it think is. a lot of people have been using it when they've talked about this case. It's very it's very easy, especially, like, tra- with transracial and transgender. Like, I actually had to really talk with my partner about, like, what trans being transgendered is and how, like, it's not about choosing a gender. It's about you are that gender like they were born that gender she wasn't born black but came out white like she decided she was black over time she built that up but she would tell you that she always felt black I know I don't know right I just, I, I just feel very uncomfortable because I don't want anyone to think being transgendered is something that people can change or that they have any power over. But I think that's becoming more and more accepted. Like if it you is. watch, do you watch Billions? No. Oh, Billions has a transgendered man. And I am so excited about that character. Yeah. It is an absolutely fantastic character. When he first comes on, he says, you can identify me as they or them. So he tells them right away in the first episode how to identify him. But the best thing about Billions is that is not the focus of that character. Exactly. And it shouldn't be. Like, there's heaps of trans actors out there now. I think RuPaul's doing an amazing job. Netflix is doing an amazing job. They try and have heaps of trans characters and real using real trans actors as well yes. which is what I think is most important yes I think with the social media this was a little surprising to me I think when this happened yeah. she should have almost just maybe made one sort of statement maybe go on one show and then shut it down exactly. give it a break Stop posting shit. Stop trolling through the comments. Like, you're you're going to kill yourself. I don't know why she was continuing to post on social media. Really. And it's amazing because, like, any person who has, you know, any type of following on social media or has had any type of PR disaster, like, it's, it's just common knowledge. Don't read the comments. And I think she really fed off that attention. It really, like, she was after that attention. And she wasn't getting the validation she was seeking through her activism anymore. She needed validation somewhere, even if it was negative validation. Well, she said part of the reason she was still on social media was because it was her only way of having a presence in the world. So I think this goes back to, like you said, why didn't she just, you know, advocate for the black community as a white woman? but she wanted to be standing in the front of the rally. She wanted to be the exactly. one making the speech. So she really wants to be out there and be known and be in the spotlight. And I think to me, what, what you have to be on social media to have a presence in the world. Like I thought that was such a strange statement. I think it just made me think she's such a narcissist. Like, and why are you only validated by other people? And it really just, like, a lot of her actions were quite narcissistically motivated. Wouldn't be surprised if she was a narcissist. 
<laughs> what do you think, yeah. Dr. Michelle? <laughs> I don't know if I would quite say she's a narcissist, really. I I don't think I would go quite that far, actually. She has some traits, I think. Some. Yeah, but I think we all can have some traits that way, but I don't think... Michelle, do you need to be validated in the universe by your place on social media? And do you need to be at the front of the rally? And that's the only way you can be a part of it? No, I don't need to be in the spotlight myself. But I think, again, that's just her right fighter because that's her passion, right? I don't... You but I don't... be a right fighter without being the leader of the of the band. I don't think the other parts of her life, she looked like she was a narcissist. So anyway, um, but I must say she is an amazing artist. Incredible. I just wish wow. she had her lane, done her art, made beautiful art. Oh my gosh. Oh, it's cool. incredible. I think that's where she should be focusing. Me too. I think she should make art and sell it under a different name and have a representative sell it for her, because, of course, her name isn't going to help, probably, to sell her art. But she would never do that, because she needs that validation. Like, she would have to be the front runner. You know that. Yeah. You know? Like, she that's just the would... problem. So do you think she kept doing the interviews and kept being in the spotlight because she wanted to be in the spotlight, or she wanted everybody to understand this idea of transracial? And trying to get her point across. I think she wanted the spotlight. Like that was the biggest problem. Is it, it took forever for her to even finally take that step. And then she didn't even want to admit it. When Even when people were pressuring her. She was on that one interview. Oh my gosh. And they're like, but your parents are white. And they're like, well, they're not really my parents. They fucking birthed you. I get, like, I get that you don't feel like they're your spiritual parents. They don't feel like they, they're your parents. But you were born. To Caucasian parents and then you decide to identify as black this is what we're trying to come back to and you will not even admit that like that's yeah. not identifying as transracial that's just being batshit crazy and that's also like not adding any credence or credit to her whole idea of being transracial like it's not a, it's not validating that or creating a movement a transracial movement it's just making her look even crazier oh I knew you'd have no sympathy <laughs> but I have no sympathy because she won't admit where she came from. Yeah. Like, That's a big that, problem. And even when they interviewed Alfred, he thought it was so weird that she thought of him as her father. And I'm just like, wow, is Rachel misreading that relationship? No, I don't think so. He said yes, he's I knew not. you would say that. <laughs> You knew I'd disagree. <laughs> I knew you would come to her rescue. <laughs> well, no, he said that he's not her biological father, but he was honored to be given that title. He seemed weird about it, though. Like, he didn't necessarily think of her like a daughter. I didn't necessarily feel that relationship was, as re was reciprocated to the same level on both sides. Well, when you read the book... They kind of had a falling out when this happened. He took a pause, and they did mention that in the documentary. Yeah. And in the book, she said when she went on, I think it was the Today Show, one of the first interviews she did, he kind of really stopped talking to her after that. And then eventually she does some other interview, which we don't see in the documentary, 
And then he saw that and then he texted her and said that she did a good job. And that's when he started talking to her again. So I think when we saw her in the documentary with him, I think they probably had just kind of reconnected at that point. But I don't think Alfred thought of her as a daughter. I don't. I have to say, the racial issue, it's really shed light on this issue of of what we now call blackfishing. I did mention it earlier in the podcast because I just couldn't hold on to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's something that really drives me crazy. People in social media and celebrities, basically blackfishing. This term became popularized on Twitter by a writer, Juana Thompson, in 2018. Basically was coined to reflect a perception that you're cosmetically enhancing your appearance through makeup and hairstyles to appear as if you have black heritage. And it's about picking and choosing the common black traits and characterizing them and characteristics for your benefit. And the big problem is a lot of these women don't have to deal with the the racially charged backlash and you have it all the good and none of the bad, basically. And so the Kardashians have come under fire for years now for blackfishing, yet sadly, they're still, for some weird reason, the most famous women in the world. And I bet most people don't even know that they're Armenian. And it's not just the Kardashians, however, they are some of the most famous blackfishers. Yeah, so just basically the idea of using those positive black characteristics to sell things on Instagram and it's it's not only appropriating black culture but it's also just taking advantage of it and and you know using it for the wrong reason yeah so just it's one of my biggest pet peeves I freaking hate this it drives me crazy that the Kardashians are these insanely famous idiots that mm-hmm. pretend they're black and and everyone just buys it and doesn't question it. it drives me crazy. Yeah, I I don't have much use for the Kardashians. Who does, Michelle? I just yeah, they're really something else. I don't even know what to say about all that. It's just awful, really. News flash: um, Kylie Kardashian was removed from Forbes billionaires list today because they've been lying about their financial records. <gasps> so, really? That's what I woke up to this morning was Kylie Kardashian being removed from Forbes top billionaires list because of, yeah, because they went through, went to extreme measures to falsify their financial documents. Wow. So, guys, maybe a revolution's coming. Well, that must be just so that they can get paid more for their Instagram posts. That's why they fake their documents to make it look like she's in more demand than she is. Exactly. I uh, I just can't wait. <sighs> Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. So final thoughts about this documentary. Michelle, what did you think? Well, I enjoyed the story. I think it was interesting to really challenge some of those thoughts about race in our society and identity and culture. I must say I admire that she's a strong enough person to keep putting herself out there and trying to make her point, even though we think it's crazy. I wish she would never have lied because 
she joined that black student union as a white person and she was accepted and she could have done more for the black community just by being transparent about her background and being accepted more so that the stuff she did do doesn't feel like it was all a waste. And now the focus is more on this lie than the good she did. So I hope she'll find her place in the future. Um, And I hope her kids will be okay because I, do feel bad for poor Franklin that was struggling during this time. And I hope people will be kinder to her because I wasn't too impressed with all the negative rude comments on social media that people can be so bad with not threaten to kill her child with a gun. I know like we don't need to take it that far guys. We're all a bit shocked by her decisions, but we don't need to threaten anyone's lives. Exactly. So I hope she's able to move forward as well. But, Michelle, how realistic do you think that is with that name change she had at the end? Well, if she didn't put it in the documentary, I think it would have been helpful. But now that it's out there and everybody knows, it's not really giving her a fresh start, unfortunately. I thought it was actually a pretty smart thing to do, but having it in the documentary wasn't. Yeah, and, you know, there was a bit more of that cultural appropriation with that name decision. Like, yes, yes, I wasn't even going to go there, but yes. So maybe maybe she could have had a fresh start if she had picked a less racially charged name. Yeah. It just makes me think, obviously, she's not going to stop portraying herself as a black woman anytime soon. Oh, no, Um, I don't think she'll ever do that. Nor do I ever think anyone's going to call her by her new name. I think she'll forever be Rachel. Yes. Because she's infamous now. Yep. Yeah. So for me, um, this documentary just left me with so many thoughts and questions. It made me think of race as a social construct. It made me think of how it compares to gender identity, like we've talked about. And yeah, like if you can transition for genders... What's stopping you from transitioning from race? Oh, wait, sorry. That's just white privilege talking. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, So after watching it, I had just a lot of really rich, robust discussions on these topics with my partner. And we spent a lot of time unpacking a lot of subjects we never really, I think, were brave enough to talk about before. It was a good way to start a dialogue on things white people don't want to talk about. So I just love that the documentary made me really think beyond Rachel and take a deeper look at race, at society, at what's going on in the world. Absolutely. I agree with you 100% there. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Please leave us a five-star review on Apple iTunes if you listen on Apple iTunes and share if you like the podcast so we can grow our listeners. Now, next week, we're going to be doing the Fire Festival. So this was the big music festival that turned into a disaster. So we're going to look at what happened. So definitely give that a watch. I think it's just called Fire. Yes. Yeah. And listeners, I want to know. What do you think of Michelle's timelines? Yay, nay. Are you team Chelsea on this one or team Michelle? You came around to my timeline this episode. I did. I did. I just want to know who else loves timelines as much as you. I think the listeners love it. We'll have to find out. Thank you. 
<laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye.